Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Disruptive CEO Nation, where company founders, entrepreneurs, and cutting-edge thinkers drop in from around the globe to share startup stories, insider insights, and hard-earned success lessons. Now, here's your host, a woman who mastered business by placing heels on the ground all over the world, having worked with and coached CEOs and senior leaders from over 90 countries, and who wants you to build your best business future, Allison K. Summers. Hey, this is Allison Kay. Thank you for joining us today. We have a remarkable business builder with us today. I am always fascinated by the advancements in healthcare and how technology is changing the way that we can have accessibility, affordability, and really democratization of healthcare services. And I think you're going to find this one really interesting. So I'd love to introduce you to an individual who is a fantastic entrepreneur, a femtech expert. And so with that, Tuss, welcome to the program. Tell everybody who you are and what wonderful things you're doing in the world today. Hi, Allison. It's great to be here. My name is Tess Kosad. I am uh, one of the co-founders and CEO of Bea Fertility. And Bea Fertility is a startup who is on a mission to bring the fertility clinic home by building accessible and affordable fertility treatments that can be accessed by everybody. So Tess, thank you for that. And for my listeners, if you if you immediately clicked and said, oh, fertility treatments isn't a topic I'm interested in. No, please stay tuned and listen to the whole episode, because as I said, this disruption or how we're approaching disruption for healthcare, I think is is key for everybody across all sorts of products. Um, Tess, tell us, just roll back a little bit, because this is a big global challenge for, for many families, many individuals. And so what was your background that led you to the impetus to say, this is a problem I'm going to take on. Uh, it's a, it's an interesting story. It's actually a, a story of the team, really. My co-founder, David, is a clinical embryologist, and he spent 10 years working in clinics on Harley Street in London. And he just noticed hundreds, you know, almost thousands over the 10 years of people coming through the doors who were desperate for help, who were maybe spending the last of their savings on a, on a treatment cycle, and, and who really were at the end of of the journey, but who had not succeeded and were desperate to try something at home. And really there just wasn't anything on the market. And, and David started looking around to see, well, what, what can I build? Like, what can I do to help people conceive at home? And, and that was really the genesis for the company. I, uh, whilst David was doing this, I actually was on a completely different path. I was working in the sex tech space. So I was working with a bunch of female entrepreneurs, mostly in New York, a group of, of women called the Women of Sex Tech. And it's, it's an incredible group of women. Everybody's been working on the most amazing things. And what I was checking was how to help young women, particularly teenage girls, have safer first sexual experiences. And that 
an interesting problem to be working on, but it's also just not a viable problem to solve commercially because anytime you're combining anything with um, minors and uh, sex-related products, you cannot legally do anything in that space. So whilst the mission was sort of, uh, you know, the mission and and the problem I was solving is, is very real, the route to solving it just wasn't there. And as I was coming to that conclusion, somebody randomly introduced me to David, who at the time had a prototype in his hands and, and was at the stage of, of thinking, well, what, what do I do now? Um, and we were really just the perfect pairing. Uh, you know, from my perspective, I'm obsessed with solving anything that doesn't strike me as fair. Um, and from his perspective, he had this great piece of technology that was, you know, needed to be brought to market and we came together really nicely. Well, I love that, the idea of, of co-founders being a perfect pairing. Um, I've talked to a lot of people and there's so, I, I, I hear the gamut of how co-founders come together and work together. And sometimes it's a happy story and sometimes it's a sad story. Um, yeah. So so that is absolutely fabulous. And and you had been, you had done other startups before this one, correct? I ran an ad agency for uh, sort of three, three and a half years. It, it was completely different in a completely different space. So it was very much a, a B2B, a business business ad agency. So we were working in running creative campaigns in sectors such as um, mining, energy, satellite launches, uh, precision agriculture. It was sort of very, very different to anything I do today. But it, it, you know, it really did set me up for the skill set that I think I do bring to the business today, which is very much a strategic marketing hat and and sort of having an eye on the vision and the positioning of the brand and the future of the company and what that looks like, both externally to investors and employees and and, and to future customers. Well, I want to give everybody the the website before we go further, just because I I love to do this just in case somebody's at a desk or a place to look. And it's beafertility.com. Calm. And I have it open on another screen so I can look at it as we, <laughs> as we talk. Um, so this is part of the femtech movement. So can we just talk a little bit about what it's like to be in the femtech space? And is it really a very underserved uh, segment of uh, technology? So that's an interesting question. Being in the femtech space, I think for us as a company, we've done quite well out of that. So I, I like to say that we are sort of the worst things of two of the best sectors. So we're a medical device company and our product is a medical device. So we're regulated and carry all of the legal and regulatory risk of that side of the business. But we're also a direct-to-consumer company and we're building a very consumer-facing brand. So we carry all of the go-to-market risk of the D2C brands and, and, and that sort of side of things. And, and we take those two big risks and we mash them together in one big company. And so honestly speaking, being in, in the femtech movement, as it were, it's actually been quite helpful uh, to us because as that gains momentum, it's just something that sort of carries us with it. Having said that, I think as a founder, sometimes I feel a little bit conflicted about femtech because, you know, women being half the population, do we have to put a label on products that are made for women? Uh, do, you know, do, does female always have to be, to come first ahead of founder? It, particularly when people, you know, we talk about female founders, I look forward to a time when we can just be founders. I suppose I think it's um, it's sort of a, a a really difficult thing to to have to think about. It's a little bit conflicting, really, because I think we do need some tech. You know, we do need the awareness that women do need more more technology and more products. And and 
we live with so many health issues that just go completely unnoticed. Mm -hmm. It's so critical that we address these. And and so the label of femtech, I think, to single that out and to put that into the, the spotlight is absolutely critical. But I do nonetheless look forward to a time when it's just tech or health tech, um, you know, for everybody. Well, Tess, and, and you know, I we've chatted a little before and I work in the gender equality space um, at, aligned with a nonprofit as, as part of my uh, professional career. And it is interesting because when I meet people, they're like, oh, well, you must have a women's podcast. And I'm, I'm like, what? You know, um, because I want to bring forth all stories from uh, diverse entrepreneurs from all over the all over the world. And I, I think you're you're right. It's it is a place that we still need to shine the spotlight, but it would be nice um, when we don't need to. So let's move along because I'm very, very curious about the science. You said your co-founder was an embryologist. You came from the mm-hmm. sex tech space. I, you know, you'd be out of the website and it is fertility care reimagined. So help the general um, listener understand the science and a little bit more about the practicalities about what um, your company is going to solve for us. Of course. So we're working on bringing a treatment back. And so I'll sort of walk it back a little bit and tell the whole story, which is that if you were looking for fertility treatment anytime up until about the mid seventies, you'd have gone into a clinic and the only thing on offer for you would have been ICI, intracervical insemination, which is a form of insemination that involves basically holding semen against the cervix for an extended amount of time. In the mid seventies, IVF was, was coming to the fore. And as a result of, of an advancement in technology brought about by IVF, suddenly we could extract sperm cells out of a semen sample, which created a whole new clinical treatment called IUI, intrauterine insemination. So IUI around the mid seventies started to completely replace ICI uh, for commercial reasons. You know, clinics, it's a lot more invasive. It requires a lot more resource, clinics can charge a lot more money for it and it takes them less time to administer. And so ICI as a clinical treatment just disappears. What, we are doing is off the basis of some some research that came out in 2018 2019 that showed that there's really not much difference in efficacy between ICI and IUI we decided that it was time to bring ICI back but it was time to bring it back in a way that is accessible affordable and principally safe because I think when you're making medical devices and you're helping people create families you have a responsibility to do it in a in a regulated and safe way well, I, I love this piece about accessibility because medical care, you know, we're so blessed if we live in nations where we have access to medical care. So let, mm-hmm. let's start right there. Um, whether it's it's something that is a public health care system or or something that you have to pay for, you're you're still just blessed if you have access to healthcare. And you know, the concept that if you are a a, a family. Um, of whatever size and shape and type you you are and that you choose to be, that, as you said, I've got to choose between a down payment on a house or getting a car and trying to have a, a family, those are really tough choices for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, for that, it, it's just all my respect to people in the medical device and the healthcare field who are th- making everything more accessible to individuals and to 
um, families. Can you can you give us a rough idea of the cost comparison or or what you're targeting? I know you're still pre-revenue, but you know how much you're trying to cut that you know that anticipated fee or cost down for the families. Of course. So we originally wanted you to be able to afford anywhere between three and six cycles of our treatment for the price of one cycle in the clinic. So, for example, in the UK, if you're going to go and get IUI, uterine insemination done in a clinic, you're looking at paying around £1,500 by the time they sort of have everything and all of the, the consultations and the tests that go with that. We are looking at charging around £300 um, a month for one of our fertility kits which means you can effectively use five of those for the price of a single clinical cycle. And in our kit, we provide two insemination devices, but we also provide ovulation test strips to be able to know when you're ovulating, when to use the device, pregnancy tests to know if it works, and then a digital health experience that wraps around the whole thing and gives you the support you need as you're, as you're going through a, a treatment cycle at home. And I love that that digital support idea. So I have to come back and ask you, which I ask most of my entrepreneurs, is how did you approach team building? I mean, you and your co-founder came together. It was magic, but you still had a whole whole lot to pieces to put into place. So how did you approach that that team building? And then, of course, how do you approach the the capital to get it started? This is a good question. So I have a couple of old school management mentalities that I've probably, you know, probably picked up from somewhere and I haven't really managed to let go of. But I think as a CEO of a startup, my job is, is choosing. It's finding the smartest people to, to bring on board into the team. And I'm finding the money to keep the lights on so I can pay them and they can do their best work. And that's really it. The, the sort of umbrella over those two things is the vision and selling the vision. You've got to sell the vision to the smartest people to convince them to join your, your merry band of, of sort of high risk appetite people. And then you've also got to pitch the vision to investors to convince them to, you know, as to why you'll win and to convince them to really buy into the vision. But fundamentally, you know, alongside being a broken record for the vision and what we're doing, it's just two things. Find the smartest people, find money to pay them so they can do their best work. And so I very much approach hiring from the perspective of hire phenomenal people who show incredible levels of autonomy, um, who have shown an ability to pick, pick something up and run with it and hire those people. Because you're in a startup, you won't have time to performance manage everyone to the detail and, and there's very little structure to start. And it's important when you've got a team of four that everyone can do a bit of everything and that everyone moreover knows the end goal and can sort of pull on different threads and contribute towards getting you to the end goal. So I always hire people for a dem- you know, demonstrated ability to, to run with things. Um, and, and then, yeah, in terms of fundraising and finding capital, that's really the other half of my job. Um, if, if we're able to pay salaries and I'm the stupidest person in the room, I think that I've done a good job as a CEO. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I do think it's, it's, you know, this piece of hiring people who have demonstrated the ability to run with things in autonomy, you know, as your, as your business building, is your team all in the UK? You're in the UK. We are. Yes. Um, and it's a very, I think, difficult thing to interview for. Do you have any tips or tricks um, when you're going through that process? Uh, yes. Yeah. So I think be extensive 
when you're looking for somebody. So I think I probably interviewed uh, 16 people for our first hire. Um, but when you believe that you've hit upon a candidate who could be a good fit for the role, I think a lot of times I've seen hiring managers then dig into the CVs and the experience and, and pick apart portfolios. But if you've found someone who it has demonstrated that they've got the skills for the job, that they've got autonomy, that they can pick something up and run with it. If they bought into your vision, give them a chance and trust them. Obviously, hedge your bets, you know, and that's why there's all sorts of things. In Europe, it's slightly different. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to, well, it's hard to fire people in Europe. It's a lot easier. In <laughs> I am world. aware. I am aware of that. <laughs> but you can still nonetheless hedge your bets. You know, you can have probation periods and employment contracts. You can have 12-month employment contracts. You know, there are things that you can do to de-risk the initial trust. But I would, you know, my tip is if you if you think you found a candidate who will run with things, who's bought into your vision and who has the skills required to do the job, trust that they will be able to do the job. And and that's really, I think, something that I've definitely used in the past. You know, there are certain people who I've hired into the team where at the beginning I, I sort of thought, you know what, I'm going to take a leap of faith here. And it could not have paid off in a, in a better way. So let's talk about that second equation, which is the money part. Um, mm-hmm. Tell us where you're at in the fundraising journey. Yeah, so we've uh, raised and closed the pre-seed round. We raised uh, just under £500,000 from angel investors in BC. And then we won an, an innovation grant from the UK government for um, £300,000. So according to PitchBook, we've raised $1.2 million. I'd love to know what their exchange rate is, but uh, <laughs> so it's listed there. But uh, the pre-seed round closed out towards, yeah, closed out the end of February. So it uh, feels like a long time ago. It wasn't that long ago, but it's, it's, uh, originally that was really designed to give us 12 months of runway, but actually I'm, I'm in a position where I'm thinking of racing again um, relatively shortly after, but it makes sense from an inflection and momentum perspective in the business to think about raising our seed round. Fantastic. So you're going to go to launch in early 2022 and mm-hmm. you have shared with our listeners that you used to run a marketing company. So is there, a, I, I, you know, I'm sure everybody's like, oh, she's Tessa's got this down. She's going to get us the best launch ever. But but really, can you give us a little tidbits and insights into that go to market strategy? Yeah, for sure. I actually arguably think that's the part of my job that I'll probably do the worst at <laughs> when we come to it. But, uh, I was lucky enough to work with somebody who teaches uh, strategic marketing using a simulation that's actually used on the Wharton Capstone MBA program. Mm-hmm. So I have a pretty solid grounding um, that I was sort of fortunate to to work alongside this guy teaching courses. So I sort of went through this course myself four or five, seven, eight, nine times over the years as, as we were teaching this. And really, I would start with the, the strategy and start with the pillars. And it's uh, you know, it's not that flashy startup advice. It's actually quite solid and boring, which is why it probably never gets published anywhere. But um, segment your market, find people who have needs that are similar enough to one another, but as a group different from the next closest group. As soon as you've done that, you've got your segment. Rank them. Who do you want to target first? You know, who who is the best segment to go for? And there are different things that you can evaluate those segments based on, you know, growth, um, the number of competitors in the segment, the size of the segment, mm-hmm. etc. 
And then my third thing is position your product for the segment that you're launching into. So positioning, I think, is is one of those things that we talk a lot about, but very few people truly get right. Um, I think an ex- an ex- a fabulous example of, of positioning actually is LV and their breast pump. They knew exactly who they were going for, and they built that product for that segment. They built that brand and, and really positioned for in right in the center of that segment. It launched beautifully. So I think uh, you know segment your market, your your market, pick somebody, pick a segment, target, and then position your product, position your offering for the segment that you've targeted, and that includes. You know, positioning includes all of the things that that we then that we usually go straight to without doing the the strategic work up front. But really, the positioning is you know what's the brand I'm building, what's my messaging, what are the channels I'm using. It's I think in business school it's anywhere from the four to the fourteen P's, uh, but it's it's all of those things that, mm-hmm. that come under that heading. And and that advice is really not groundbreaking. It's not new. It's it's very old actually. So it's not particularly sexy, but. It works every time. And you can see the companies that, that do it well. Well, and this rolls into my next question, which is, you know, what other advice do you have for early stage business builders? We, because we talk about how grueling it is before you've even launched and that you have to have, which you said yourself, you know, you got to sell the vision, sell the vision. And you've given a lot of tips of wisdom, but is there any other lesson that you have found very valuable in your a career of starting companies or as you have approached building this company? It's a good question. I think the advice I give is advice I've received. Um, none of it's really original thought. I'm fortunate enough to be surrounded by incredibly smart people who are very generous with their own uh, nuggets of wisdom. But I think from from my perspective, and, and I learned this a little bit the hard way, is as a sort of CEO startup, you're resource constrained, which means that one day you'll be doing the weekly payment run in your accounting software. And the next day you'll be pitching, uh, you know, tier one VC with this incredible vision for the next five years. And you've got this sort of task switching between big grandiose things that make you feel you know, like you're really at the start of something big and, and then tiny minutia that make you realize that actually you're sort of down here in the in the weeds and being able to keep a keen focus on on the vision and, and remember what you're doing while you're you know what why you're doing what you're doing excuse me it, it is pretty critical particularly when not only are you in the weeds of, of your business before you can hire people and to pick up those those roles but you're also likely getting rejected by some of the smart candidates you were chasing some of the vcs you wanted to chase i think the rejection part of it you know, and everyone says don't take it personally. And then every founder I know actually does end up taking it personally. And that's really, you know, one of the other hardest things is not everyone is the right investor for your business. I actually started, my rule is if you can't honestly and frankly say the word vagina, you don't belong on the cap table. Uh, <laughs> you know, you've got to develop acid tests because not everyone is for you. And if you chase everybody, you'll get told no. And it may have nothing to do with you, your business, you as a CEO, what you're working on. But it's hard to, to, to remember that in the moment when you're getting rejected a lot. But actually, a, a, a good friend of mine is the head of ERA in New York and Accelerator. And um, I remember after my 
pre-seed round going and, and sort of catching up with him and, and talking about it. And I ended up saying, you know, it's, uh, founders are not honest enough about how hard it is to fundraise and how often you get rejected because it's all about signaling. You both sort of signal that you have this fantastic round and you're in Sifted or whatever publication you end up announcing your round in. But really what we don't say is stories of the founders where it was a real grind and it was a real grind for us. It's really hard work. And um, my friend said that actually he respects more the founders who have gone through an extremely grueling fundraising process and nonetheless made it and raised the capital they set out to raise because those are the founders that really have grit and determination. And I think that's the story and the advice and the view that we so rarely hear as startups because we're so focused on on being the one in a million kind of unicorn story, but actually some of the biggest success stories came out of some of the hardest, darkest, longest fundraising journeys and, and product building journeys. And I think those are the ones that it would be good to, to seek out and talk about more, particularly if you're in the middle of one of those journeys yourself. Well, as you said, you, you know, as the, as, as one of the founders, you are holding the vision with the capital V every single day. And, and you can't be, you, you have to kind of suspend some edge of being a realist when you're doing what you're doing. I, I, I had an interview with one founder and she said she was in the ed, ed tech space and she said she had over 200 rejections to get to her full seed. And I'm thinking uh, there's no way I could have done that. But man, she yeah. carried that vision with the capital V you know, to the nth degree and, and now has her product on multiple retail shelves and the company's doing fine, but you, you have to be able to get there. So Tess, I agree with everything that you've just said about, you know, feeling resource constrained um, and, you know, because there is no throne for a founder, there's no, no. <laughs> you're probably no. spending more time on the footstool than on the throne. Oh, um, you absolutely do. You might walk off the stage having pitched successfully to 150 people, but I guarantee you're going to go and put out one of those tiny fires <laughs> on the side right afterwards. So uh, it's an interesting ride. Yeah. Well, listen, it, this has been a, a, a great time speaking with you and I've learned so much and I've learned new things. And, and again, I, I just think that what you're doing is is so important in terms of disruption in the healthcare space and and really impacting direct individual people's lives and I can't wait to see what happens when your when your company launches and you know make sure that I stay on the list so that I'm aware and we can let our network know but for today let our audience know how they can find out more how they can reach the company or reach you of course, um, you're welcome to reach. You can reach our team through hello at bayafertility.com, uh, B-E-A, fertility, our website, bayafertility.com, uh, my email test at bayafertility.com. Please feel free to reach out. There's a launch list on the website, so you can sign up there to be the first to know when we're ready to go live. And uh, that's, yeah, those are really the, the best ways to reach out and get in touch. Thank you so much, Tess. And for our listeners, if you loved and appreciated uh, Tess's founder stories, I want to tell you 
that my new book, Build Your Brand, Make Business Happen in a Global Economy, has wonderful entrepreneur and founder stories very similar to Tessa's. So check it out on Amazon or give me a ping. If there is a wonderful company founder disruptor that you think I need to speak with, send me a note at connect at allisonksummers.com. Until then, keep your eye on the future and always be disruptive. Thank you again, Tess. Thanks, Allison. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.